Welcome, First Baptist Church of Keller family. I also extend a welcome to any visitors who've dropped by our website, www.fbckeller.org. And we begin today with Lecture 1 in our Systematic Theology class. Last week we had a brief introduction and advertisement about the class. But we want to jump right in into our first area of Systematic Theology, which is Bibliology. And Bibliology is the branch of theology concerning the study of the Bible. I want to direct you to a resource that we have on our website. If you will click on Weekly Resources, scroll down to you find Systematic Theology. There will be a study guide that you can download and print on your home printer. And if you haven't done that yet, I encourage you to pause the lesson and print that out and you can follow along. There's going to be some vocabulary words we're going to go over and several key passages of Scripture and again, I encourage you to go at your own pace, stop, rewind, listen as many times as you would like. We're going to begin today with a verse of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Scripture says, uh, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now that's a very famous verse, has to do with faith, and we saw from a sermon a couple of weeks ago that faith is not only belief, it is that, but it's also uh, the whole content of what God has revealed about himself. Verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. And so the question today is, how do we know that God exists? How can we defend our beliefs, in other words? Well, people say you either believe or you don't. Well, the real answer is that God is not silent. He has revealed not only who he is, but what his character is like and his eternal plan of redemption. And he has done so in two primary ways. And so if you'll look on your study guide, you'll notice that the first vocabulary word is revelation. Now we're not talking about the last book of the Bible, not the book of Revelation, but the concept of biblical revelation, which simply means that God has conveyed truth concerning his character, his nature, and his plan to humanity. So God is not silent, in other words. And so the two primary ways in which God has conveyed truth is through what we call natural revelation. Another word for that is general revelation. And then the second way is special revelation. General or natural revelation means that God has revealed himself through creation. There's a couple important key Bible texts that show us this. Uh, first and foremost is Psalm 19.1, which says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So if you go out, West Texas, away from the city lights on a clear night, you look up into the heavens, you see the stars and the moon, uh, you see the vastness of God's creation, and that glorifies God. That's what we call natural revelation. The root word of natural is nature. So in nature, God has revealed what he's like, that he's powerful, that he's creative, and he's a God of order. But he has also revealed himself through what theologians called special revelation. That is through supernatural means, through dreams and visions to the prophets, um, through the incarnation, that is when Christ took on flesh, and through scripture. And so that is seen, of course, in places like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, 
whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so God reveals himself through natural revelation and through special revelation. Now, another place that we see natural or, or general revelation, by the way, it's called general revelation because it's available to everyone. Christian, non-Christian, believer, unbeliever, it's generally available. Whether you are an aborigine from Australia or you grew up in nobility in England, you can look at nature and it reveals God's glory. And one of the places we see that in the scriptures is in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. So that seems to indicate that all humans are born with a conscience. They understand the difference between right and wrong because God implants that within every person. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And so that is general revelation. All men and women are without excuse if they have their senses about them. That is that they can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch. They can look around them and know they didn't create all of this and someone who is more powerful and uh, transcendent did. Now the second concept we want to look at though is inspiration. And that has to do with special revelation. And probably the classic verse to do with inspiration is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Of course, the Apostle Paul is writing to the young pastor of Ephesus, Timothy. He's encouraging him to preach the word. He says, all scripture is inspired by God. That word inspiration means to breathe out. That's why we say in some translations, it's God breathed. That is when we study and read and preach from the scriptures, the scriptures have the same authority as if God were standing in some visible manifestation before us, uttering those words. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so when we talk about the scriptures, they're more than the words of men. They're more than the collection of prophets their own opinions about things. The Bible is the word of God. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say things like the Bible contains the word of God. Well, that doesn't go far enough. All scripture, A-L-L is what Paul says. All scripture is breathed out by God and therefore all the scripture has authority. When we say that scripture has authority, it means it has the power and the right to make demands of us. It has the right to command us to do and believe certain things. And so one of the mistakes that modern man makes about the Bible is that modern man tries to stand in judgment over the scriptures, whereas scripture is to stand in judgment over mankind. So let's talk about inspiration just a little bit. Um, how do we know that the Bible as we have it is the one that is correct? Well, we talked last week a little bit about our Baptist faith and message, which is our church's adopted theological position. And on the scriptures, the Baptist faith and message says this, the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired. That's that word again. And is God's revelation of himself to man. 
And so, in other words, if God had not revealed himself to man, we'd be in the dark. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's the end of the quote from the Baptist faith and message. Now, there are numerous theories in what we call systematic theology about how God conveyed his special revelation, that is, theories of inspiration. I'm going to just mention two here today because those are the two that are most popular in evangelicalism. The first is dictation theory. The dictation theory is the idea that God took a prophet and set him down in a chair, and basically that prophet became a robot. And God told him exactly every word to write down, and it had nothing to do with that prophet's background or cultural context. He basically was just the glove that God put his hand in and and did the writing. That is not what we teach here. What we teach here is what's called verbal plenary theory of inspiration. That is that every word, um, that's what the word plenary means, all, all the words of the Bible come from God, and they are God's words. Now, that does not mean that he didn't use the particular personality or writing style of the authors. He did. It's very obvious if you study the Bible in the original languages that each of the writers had a particular unique style. But one of the things that makes the Bible so miraculous is that it was written over a span of hundreds of years, and yet thematically it's consistent from start to finish. And so we teach and believe here the the verbal plenary um, method of of inspiration. Now one of the places that we go to in the scripture for that is 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 20, which says, For know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke for God. So the Bible says of itself that God moved men through his Holy Spirit who became spokesmen for God And yet, in no way does that do violence to the truth that these are God's words. Now, one other concept that was mentioned in the Baptist Faith and Message article about the scriptures, you probably picked up on as we were going through, is the concept of inerrancy. And the concept of inerrancy is just what it sounds like, that the Bible is without error. And of course, that has been a source of controversy in most mainline denominations, and at one point was a real source of controversy within our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. And that is the idea that all of Scripture, as Paul told Timothy, is God-breathed. And because God is perfect, therefore it stands to reason that His Word is perfect. That is, it does not contain errors historically scientifically, through philosophy, or in any other area. And of course, we teach that at our church. Our pastors here are, to a man, inerrantist. We believe that all the Bible is true. Now, it, uh, of course, is, is not a popular position in the world largely because 
Um, there are sections of the scripture, as you know, that run cross grain to political correctness. And so in many cases, liberal theologians have tried to make allowances for those positions that the Bible take that are politically incorrect. And that's why Christians need to be willing to run cross grains of the culture. And so uh, we take the position, we believe it's the biblical position, that all the Bible is true and it's trustworthy and it has authority in the lives of all believers. Well, there is a, another concept there on your study guide, and that is a word some of you might not be familiar with, perspicuity. And that's a $10 word. You might just put in parentheses out to the side of that word clarity. It means basically that the basic story of the teachings of the Bible can be understood by all believers. The basic story and teachings of the Bible can be understood by all believers. This includes and especially the gospel story. And so I know that sometimes when you're reading the Bible, particularly if you're trying to read the Bible all the way through in six months or a year, you come to certain sections of Scripture that kind of make you scratch your head and you really uh, understand it's a very difficult passage. We're not saying there aren't portions of the Bible that are difficult or more difficult than others to understanding. We're saying that the basic story of the Bible, and especially the gospel, is clear and understandable by all believers. Now, it's important to add that little footnote by all believers because the scripture says of itself that unbelievers can't understand the Bible because it's understood through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we speak of perspicuity or clarity of the scriptures, we're speaking of those who have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them. Now, there's another concept here. It's called necessity. And we need to kind of back up a little bit and talk about the difference between natural and general revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation, now, now mark this clearly, natural revelation is not enough to save anyone's soul. And so if you go to the Grand Canyon and you look over the south rim of the canyon, um, if you're like me, you get giddy and you start praising the Lord for his power and his creativity but looking at the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Ocean or even climbing Mount Everest is not enough to make you right with a holy God. We need special revelation. And what we mean by that of necessity, that it is necessary to hear the gospel as revealed in the scriptures in order to be saved. And the scripture says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We take that to mean that unless a person hears the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ lived, he died, and he rose again, it is impossible for them to be saved. And so I say it like this, and I'm not trying to be flippant. General revelation is not enough to save a person, but it is enough to damn a person. What I mean by that, he said in, in Re uh, Romans chapter 1 that because of general revelation, because God has implanted a conscience within us, because he's given us eyes and ears to perceive his creation in nature, he says, all men are therefore without excuse. And so sometimes people ask me a question, what about that innocent man in deepest, darkest Africa who has never heard the gospel? And my response to that, again, without being flippant, is that man does not exist. There is not a person on earth, number one, who is innocent, because Romans 1 says he is without excuse. 
And please don't have the notion that people in the far reaches of planet Earth have no knowledge about God. I have heard many missionaries who go to these places come back and say, I was wrong. I assume these people wouldn't know anything about God. The truth is they know a lot about God. They just reject God because they are like most people here. They don't want a God who holds them accountable for their personal sin and guilt. And so please understand that all men are without excuse. But there is a necessity for a person to be redeemed, to be born again, to be made right with God, that they hear a message about the gospel. And that's why we stress personal evangelism here, because people will not be saved without hearing the gospel. Now, there's one more concept under Revelation that I want to cover today, and it's uh, not stressed enough, in my opinion, in the evangelical world writ large. Most evangelicals would say, we believe the Bible is true and trustworthy. Many of them would even say, we believe it's inerrant or it's infallible, it's without fault. Some would even say it's understandable. But in their philosophy of ministry, in the way that they preach, in the way they teach the Bible, they seem to be giving mixed signals. What I mean by that, they say we believe the Bible is God's word, but they try to add to it or make the Bible, one, either more relevant for the modern world or two, less offensive. And the Bible says not to do either of those things. And what we say here is we want to teach the Bible in full dosage. The Bible warns us about adding to or taking away from God's revealed word. And so the way we describe that in theological terms is that we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. That is, the Bible is enough. And Matt Pitts grew up in First Baptist Church of Calvary. He's now the pastor at Minden Baptist Church over in East Texas. And Matt shared with me a definition of sufficiency that he shared with his systematic theology class of high school students. And he simply says this, sufficiency means there is nothing that Christians need to know in order to be saved, to live a godly life, to do ministry or obey God's will that is not already revealed in Scripture. That is, if we're not obeying God, and if we are not sharing the gospel, and if we are not living according to God's commandments, it's not because of some deficiency in the Scripture. It's not because He hasn't given us enough knowledge in His Word. Now, we don't say that everything there is to know about God is in the Bible. We're saying that everything we need to know according to God's sovereignty, is revealed in the Bible. And so that's why when I get up to preach on Sundays, I don't give my personal opinions about what's going on in the world. The first sentence out of my mouth most Sundays is, open your Bibles. And we do that because we believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture. It's not only true, it's what we need. And it, by the way, is what every generation of Christians need. I've told the story many times, but it bears repeating. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a famous Methodist pastor from a previous generation, and his lifespan covered the horse and buggy days all the way to the time when men walked on the moon. And towards the end of his life, a reporter asked him the question, what is the biggest difference in society from when you started as a pastor until this day, the modern world? And he gave this uh, very... Excellent answer. He said, when I started in ministry, 
man moved five miles an hour, and today man travels at 500 miles an hour, but he does the same sins when he gets where he's going. And I think that's a great illustration of the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture doesn't have to be dressed up or watered down. In every generation, man's fundamental need is the same. He is born a sinner. He's a sinner by nature. And as soon as he's capable, he becomes a sinner by choice. He's a rebel and an alien from God. And his greatest need is to be restored to his creator God. And the only means he can be restored is through saving faith in Jesus Christ. That is appropriating the grace of the Lord Jesus made possible through his death, burial, and resurrection and appropriated by simple belief and faith. Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He says in the book of Ephesians that salvation is by grace, that is it's a gift from God, but it's appropriated by faith. And so already I think you're seeing why the study of systematic theology is is so important. In the area of uh, bibliology, the study of the Bible, some very important terms, revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, perspicuity, necessity, and sufficiency. I encourage you to go over and over those words until they become a part of uh, your personal vocabulary, not to impress your friends, because they're theological concepts that help us to understand to a greater depth and with greater clarity what Christ has done and what he is doing in his eternal plan of redemption. Well, now I am joined by Dr. Michael Waldrop. Many of you will remember Dr. Waldrop and his wife, Hope, and their three children, Wit, Jack, and Zoe. They were members of our church briefly before we sent them out to plant the Desert Ridge Baptist Church in St. George, Utah. Uh, Dr. Waldrop, welcome. We're glad that you are here. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I greatly appreciate First Baptist Keller, uh, the fellowship and partnership in gospel ministry uh, through the years and in the planting of Desert Ridge Baptist Church. And and to the church, I certainly want to say that I I love your pastor, Keith Sanders, and his family, Um, a man of God and a a family who loves the Lord, and and we love them very much. Well, I know our people would love to hear a report about uh, what's going on at Desert Ridge Baptist Church, and I know Many of our people are also concerned for your family during uh, these difficult days. Can you tell us how everyone in St. George is doing? Well, we're healthy. We praise God for that. And uh, our our church family is is healthy, other than the normal aches and pains. Uh, but we're we're doing well uh, financially. Uh, praise God. Uh, the people here have been uh, faithful, and and we're we're on track with our budget and. That's that's not the most important thing, but but it does reflect, I think, those things that are most important. And uh, our our folks are uh, stepping up, and one of the reasons we're able to do that is because we uh, got such a good start with help from First Baptist Keller and other partners in the planning of the church. So we're I think we're we're healthy uh, physically for the most part, and spiritually for the most part, and financially for the most part. And we praise God for that. Well, thank you for that report, Dr. Waldrop. Uh, so first question for you, you are a theologian, a PhD in theology. Why is the study of theology in general and bibliology, which was our lesson today, why are those things important given your particular cultural and religious context there 
in southern Utah, an area that's uh, very much surrounded by Mormonism? Well, as as you probably know, <clears throat> Utah is kind of home base. Well, it is home base for a religion, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons, Mormonism. And um, the the reason that the Bible is so important uh, and theology is, well, on, when it concerns theology, I can't think of a more uh, contrasting theological system to biblical Christianity than Mormonism. Um, I would I would say it's just about exactly the polar opposite on most doctrines. An example would be: Is there one God? Is or is there are there many gods? And uh, a rank and file Mormon might say, "Well, we have one God," but but if you dig and learn what there's their uh, authorities say about that. Uh, what that means is there's one God to whom we relate, but but everywhere there would be an infinite number of gods um, according to their view. So that that's an example of why theology is important, and that gets us to why the Bible is important. And that's you know what do we trust? What is our authority? And for um, the followers of Jesus, the Bible is our authority. We believe. The Bible, the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation, uh, is inerrant, it's inspired, inerrant, sufficient. It's all we need, and uh, Mormonism does not. In fact, they have added other written uh, scriptures, as they would call it, uh, the Book of Mormon, which which amazingly doesn't really differ uh, in, a, in a lot of its content from, from biblical ideas, but it is in a fictional setting, and it's claiming to be history when it is not, and so it's it's false. Uh, but the doctrinal differences are found in uh, the doctrine and covenants, and also the pearl of great price. And those those doctrines that define Mormonism and make dis- and distinguish Mormonism from other religions uh, really are opposite from what the Bible says. So the Bible becomes the crux. If the Bible is true, then Mormonism cannot be true. And um, if Mormonism is true, then the Bible is not. We don't. We don't have truth in our Bibles. And of course, we do have truth. God's word is truth. Jesus said that. And so the Bible becomes a very important issue. What is the Bible, and can we trust it? And so that's why it's important here in our context. Well, that that leads me to my next question. Uh, specifically, why do we as evangelicals reject additions to the 66 books of the canon of our scripture, uh, such as the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price? The first thing, you, you know, the, you mentioned the Book of Mormon claims to be another testament of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of our uh, charter members here at Desert Ridge, I think, summed it up by saying, in reality, it should be called a testament of another Jesus Christ. Um and and that's that's the reason because the the additional writings are inconsistent with what we find in the bible now the the eighth article of faith for the lds system says we believe the bible to be the word of god as far as it is translated correctly uh, but when they run into uh, a situation where the bible contradicts a mormon doctrine they will often say well this apparently is one of those places in the Bible where it is not translated correctly. Um, but when you look at the the discipline of, uh, it's called textual criticism, uh, 
that it doesn't it sounds negative but it doesn't have to be when you look at the study of how we got our bibles uh, the the transmission of the text which is different from the translation of the text translation is going from the original language hebrew greek or aramaic into english or whatever the receptor language would be that's translation now, the transmission of the text is, you know, how do we know that what we're translating from is what it claims to be? But when you study all that, there is certainly and absolutely no sure foundation of a document uh, for historical reliability than uh, the books that make up the Bible. So so it's just a matter of, of, of uh, if you, do you believe anything? If anything can be taken as true, uh, the Bible has all manner of objective reasons to be taken as true. But I think the number one reason to take it as true is because of how accurate it is in describing the human heart and how it uh, accurately just nails us in terms of who we are, what we are, why we're here, who God is, who man is, what salvation is. It is just such an accurate description of what we all know to be true uh, because of who we are. And and even with that, I would say we can trust the Bible more than we can even trust what we think of ourselves and even our own life experience. So um, that's what I would say. Uh, The Bible deals with reality, and uh, other books uh, may include some truth, but they are not reliable and certainly Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price teach a works salvation that is designed to uh, achieve godhood for the adherent. Uh, and, and, of course, there's all manner of blasphemy involved in that, and it's the opposite of what the Bible says salvation is and who God and who man is. So so that's that's the my conversation with a, an LDS person about the Bible would, in, would include those things. Well, I know that you're very much interested uh, in training your people, I mean the members of Desert Ridge Baptist Church there in southern Utah. Um, so what role does apologetics play in your ministry, uh, specifically as it relates to training children uh, who live in that part of the country? In biblical Christianity, the home and uh, the church are going to play <clears throat> very important roles. Very first, The very first line of, of offense here in this uh, need to know the truth about what God has said would be the home. Look at Deuteronomy 6 um, and and, in the early part of that chapter, it places responsibility on parents as well as Ephesians 6 and other places. Churches can't replace that and I would say parents, if you are not talking about God and the things of God and the gospel, you are planning with your children. You are planning for them not to know or not to be committed to these things. And you know God can he accomplishes all of His good pleasure, uh, but to to presume upon Him and the church to handle that task as a replacement for the parents is just a terrible uh, a terrible idea when God has given that primary responsibility to parents. So. Uh, Dads, step up and read some scripture with your children and teach them how important the Bible is. Um, We need our children to know, for example, on this topic, 
that in Deuteronomy 4.2 and 12.32 and in Proverbs 36 and in Revelation 22.18 and 19, uh, the Bible says not to add to, to the Word of God or to take away from it. So we need to know that that's what the Bible says. Uh, we need to know that Jeremiah 23 references people who come claiming, I have an oracle or a burden from the Lord. Uh, when And then he says, but I haven't sent them, and yet they spoke. Uh, we're not to listen to them. And there's even a test in Deuteronomy 18. How do you know if a prophet is from God? Well, if what they say uh, is true or not. That's how you test it in Galatians 1, 6 to 10. So we need to train our people in that. I think there's two two parts to that training. One should be kind of the marathon idea that the weekly teaching ministry of the church and the preaching ministry, and I think it starts with the pulpit ministry, that we preach the Word of God so that our people might know and understand so that then they, they can obey. Uh, we need to know that the Bible says don't add to the Word of God and don't believe anybody that just walks up and says, I have a message from God. Galatians 1, 6 to 10 uh, contrasts for, for Christians how uh, others would do it, like Mormons or Catholics. Mormons or Catholics would say, if, you, if you're hearing from the right messenger, and that is the Mormon prophet or the Pope, then just understand that whatever he says is right by definition and just do it. And the Bible says in Galatians 1, 6 to 10 that we measure the messenger by his message. And if his message is different from what is the established gospel and what we know to be true, then that person is to be anathema. And Paul even included himself or an angel from heaven if, if, if the preaching is different, uh, if it's a different gospel and there's not really another gospel. He says there's only one, but if it's different, then it's to be rejected. And so our people need to know that. Our people need to know because it's easy to listen to a, a charismatic, slick-talking person and think, wow, this guy sounds smart, sounds like he knows what he's doing, seems to have some good ethics. But that's not the standard. The standard is, is he preaching the gospel? Is he preaching the word of God unchanged? Uh, and uh, is he relying on that? So so that's important, and that's part of how we do that. An another thing that we do with children, uh, we start... we. We encourage our people to use a catechism with them, which is just questions and answers. Now, you have to use the right one. And I know some Baptists may struggle with the word catechism, uh, but that doesn't have anything to do with being uh, Baptist or not. Um, Charles Spurgeon used a catechism, and uh, we use a catechism for boys and girls, and we tweak it if we need to uh, to stay in line with our doctrinal distinctives here. Uh, but I think it's very helpful. I believe it's uh, born fruit in the lives of my children, uh, and it's helped me as I've uh, read the questions and the answers and the Bible references uh, to have to just to learn truth, learn theology, and so I encourage these methods for learning what the Bible says. Well, thank you. I think that's a very wise approach. Uh, finally, Dr. Waldrop, how can we pray for you and uh, your church that you served as at Ridge Baptist Church? I think the, the most important thing is uh, pray for us that God would give us grace and work to, to keep us all faithful. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, you know, related to this very topic, uh, Paul wrote that the Corinthians, he, didn't, he wanted them to learn not to go beyond what is written. And uh, I believe the context shows that when he referred to what is written, he was referring to Scripture. So I'd ask for prayer that we, in our households, in our church life, our evangelism and missions, 
um, our our existence in this community would not go beyond what is written and that we would live out what we say we believe and that we would believe the Bible, believe the Word of God, because it's true, it's truth. That's what the Lord Jesus said. So um, we we ask for your prayer in that, that we be faithful to make the gospel clear and to boldly proclaim it, and that's how we ought to speak. That's what Paul said. He asked for those, he gave those as requests um, in his letters. So that would be our request, faith, that you pray that we be faithful and God be glorified uh, in what we do, uh, especially as we're, we live here and we're tempted to just kind of get along, to go along, and uh, we don't want to be bad neighbors. We want to be good neighbors, but we want to make it clear that we don't, we're not okay with with uh, just blending in with with Mormon doctrine because we have a message that is opposite of that, and we want to make it clear so that people would know what God has done to accomplish salvation. Well, we want to do that just now. Let's close our time together in a word of prayer, and we're going to pray for Dr. Waldrop and Desert Ridge Baptist Church. Uh, before we do, I want to recommend a resource to you. It's a little book called Why Trust the Bible. It's written by a pastor named Greg Gilbert, who grew up right here in Texas. He's now ministering in Louisville, Kentucky. And it is a good examination that can be read in just an afternoon about how we got the canon of Scripture that we have today. And I think it would be very informative that for those of you who have questions about the canon of Scripture. Let's close today with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to get together online and talk about the things of God. And Father, uh, we've read from the Scripture today. We've heard a testimony from one of our brothers about how important it is to not only know the Word, but to teach the Word, and of course, most importantly, according to the book of James, to be doers of the Word. And that's my prayer, not only for Desert Ridge Baptist Church and Dr. Waldrop, but for First Baptist Church of Keller and our staff. Father, we want to live this Word out. We want to be manifestly different than a lost and dying world. We pray your protection over our brothers and sisters there in Utah. And Father, we pray you would continue to add to their number that Christ may be glorified in that part of the world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us this week. We look forward to being with you one week from today. Mm-hmm.